Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the MSRP podcast coming to you live from the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. I am your host, Jason Alois, along with my man, Triple B. Bobby Bench. Bobby, what is before I before you start talking, what is it what does the B the middle B stand for? Binger. Binger. Stands for Binger, Oklahoma, which is my dad's hometown. That's my middle name. I love it. I love it. Good job. Last week's episode, we 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 spoke a lot about the live tournament. Truth have it that uh another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust, and Brooks Kapka flipped over to the live side, I guess we could call it. And now he is participating in the next tournament. So just wanted to bring you guys a quick update on that. But as I look at Bobby right now, he is he has a little bit of a scowl on his uh, face. Just a little bit. Uh, Go ahead, Bobby. Tell everybody why you got that little scowl on your face. I uh I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to sports. At least that's what my friends have called me. Uh it's a little more polite than when they call me the old man. But you know, I'm the guy that, uh, you know, you tuck your jersey in. This is at least how my dad taught me. You shake your opponent's hands, especially at the end of a golf match. Uh, when you're playing pickup sports, you just kind of play to have fun. And uh, when it comes especially to the unwritten rules, I think the unwritten rules are something that are important in sports for not only sportsmanship, but etiquette. It also provides a little bit of an experience for the fans, especially the rule of we don't talk about no hitters. Let me say that again to reinforce the fight club standard. We don't talk about no hitters <laughs> and frankie montas yesterday for the oakland athletics took a no hitter into the seventh inning and sure enough in the bottom of the seventh seattle broadcast i'm watching their broadcast because i want to hear what jesse winker and Eugenio suarez are doing former reds i don't care if you're the way broadcast the opponents trying to jinx it whatever just just still play by the rules this is history don't mess with it so they cut away bottom of the seventh the sideline reporter Tries to do something cute, tries to reverse psychology, the jinx, and say, oh, you know, Frankie Montas probably not going to get a no-hitter today. No, that's not how it works. You said it. It's saying no-hitter is like saying Beetlejuice three times. You already ruined it. It's already gone. And sure enough, on the top of the eighth, Frankie Montas gives it up. And I think that's just one thing for the fans, for the sport. You just got to let the mystique of the game play itself out and you know whether broadcasters feel they have the uh obligation to be informed about the game and talk to the fans about the game no you gotta play by the rules the fans the players let it happen hush tones yeah you gotta let it ride see and that's that's a great point that you're making because on the contrary um garrett cole had a no hitter in the eighth inning against tampa the other night and he was gassed. You can tell. Totally gassed. He was at about 93, 94 pitches. Almost gave him up a two-run homer to break up the no-hit bid. It, it, it eventually ended up getting no-hit. Uh, the bid was actually lost in the eighth inning. But what I'm getting at is, on on the contrary to what you're saying, Michael Kay, who we'd love to have on the show. Michael Kay, if you're listening, come on the show. We'd love to have you. Uh, we're, we're kind of starting out just like you did, so we'd love to have you. But he said he was arguing with fans in New York saying, what do you want me to do? I'm just reporting I'm reporting what's going on. You know, He goes, he, he quoted John Sterling, who I love, by the way, who will go down in, in Yankee lore, I really believe that, saying, if I can change the outcome of no hitters, I wouldn't be sitting here doing radio. <laughs> but, but I kind of agree on both sides of what you know both of you guys are saying i'm very superstitious you got to dance around it a little bit though you kind of say oh the mariners don't have a hit yet wink wink but it's just yeah like i said kind of have that beetlejuice rule just don't say no hitter don't say perfect game you can talk about oh there's no runs no hits and no errors in the in the bottom of the seventh but but just don't don't say no hitter it's like meet the parents can't say bomb on an airplane yeah yeah 
I got it. Well, speaking of uh, broadcasting legends, we have a special treat for you guys today. He is a Cincinnati legend who is joining the show today. We are so excited to have him. We had a little bit of technical difficulties. Our man McKay here figured it out. We are super excited to have the great Dennis Jansen from Cincinnati on. How are you doing today, Dennis? You are far too kind, gentlemen. Nice to be with you. <laughs> How's the weather up there in Cincinnati? It is pristine today. Probably about 78, 79 degrees, low humidity, sunshine. Uh, just about perfect. But, I, uh, I miss that Midwest air. Yeah, that, is, that is subject <laughs> to change, as we all know. <laughs> so a little bit of background on DJ. Um, over the course of Dad's career in baseball, he was, you know, Dad was... Uh, boy from the outskirts of Oklahoma, good old boy. And I think he recruited a bunch of other good old boys in Cincinnati. He didn't get caught up in the, the high-end elitism of uh, Cincinnati. He found some a good group of guys, and DJ happens to be one of them that I usually refer to as the usual suspects. And DJ, what is uh, the story about how <laughs> you and Dad came to be friends the first time you met? Well, that's uh, that is way too kind of you, and I'm flattered to be included in that uh, in that grouping, Bobby. Um, I was 19 years old. I was working at WSAI Radio, an AM station here in Cincinnati. I walked in the doors at 15, and I decided at that moment that I wanted to be part of it. I didn't know what I could do what I was capable of pulling off, but I knew that I wanted to be part of it. So fast forward to four years later, and I am uh, doing promotions and answering the request line and anything that uh, would ingratiate each of the staff and management of WSAI 1360. And they had a contest, uh, win a date with Johnny Bench. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the fellow that uh, the morning drive guy, Jim Scott, he put this promotion together, and the response to it was overwhelming. And Johnny selected a letter that had been submitted on a baseball in perfect cursive handwriting. And for the uninitiated, it is very difficult to write on a baseball, legibly. Yet this woman, Maxine Brady, who was a voice major at the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati, she managed to pull this off. It was eye-stopping and eye-popping, and so Johnny picked this uh, entry and decided we were going to take Ms. Brady to dinner at the Masonette, which was a five-star restaurant here in Cincinnati, mobile five-star restaurant for 37 years, legendary place. So the uh, the general manager of WSAI was followed by Jack Carnegie, and he drove a Rolls-Royce. So we needed a suitable conveyance to get Ms. Brady and Mr. Bench and Jim Scott and his wife to the Masonette restaurant. So uh, we recruited the and enlisted the help of the general manager. He provided the Rolls-Royce, and I provided the chauffeur. I was Johnny Bench's chauffeur at age 19. I picked him up at the Forum Apartments in Clifton, picked up Maxine Brady nearby at the, her dorm, and I then picked up Jim Scott and his wife and dropped them off at the Masonette. Johnny gave me 10 bucks for gas, put in the Rolls-Royce, and then I uh, promptly went to pick up my mom and my girlfriend, and take them for a ride in a Rolls Royce, and then reported back to the Masonette at the appointed time, and uh, took the parties home. And uh, I had a great story. And I, I thought that maybe that was where it would end, but this thing would have it. And our paths crossed periodically over the next several years. Johnny's in mine, and uh, we became pretty close friends. And uh, that brings us today. I'm 
talking with uh, with you, Jason, and with, and with Bobby's eldest son, Johnny's eldest son, Bobby. Yeah, here we are. That is an awesome I, I story. Started, I started my career as a chauffeur. <laughs> now you said you put <laughs> of all the questions I know you said you put ten dollars of gas in the Rolls Royce did that oh, fill yeah. it up <laughs> uh, back in those days premium gas was about 38 39 cents a gallon <laughs> so that put a big debt in that tank uh, and ten bucks it was greatly appreciated because uh, I didn't have I didn't have the wherewithal there well it didn't fill it up and it dies around trust me you got it you and your mom and, oh and lady uh, an extra ride out of it yeah, and my mom, I, I know that my mother had never been on Rolls Royce, and chances are my girlfriend never had been and probably hasn't since, so I thought I'd treat them to a little luxury. That is a very cool story. I love it. Now, I wanted to ask you, what is the what is this, what is is this the feel of sports in Cincinnati right now? You have Joe Burrow and the Bengals, who uh, should have won the Super Bowl if it wasn't for a last-second play, and then you have the Reds. You know, what's the feel up there? How how are the fans feeling? How are they? How are they doing? When did the Bengals rookies report? That's the biggest, the most pressing question in Cincinnati right now. And I think it's July twenty third, and the veterans report July twenty sixth. And between now and then, nothing is going on in Cincinnati. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty dreary here right now. So thank goodness we're having a, a lot of good weather. Because um, the Reds is really very unfortunate, and uh, being a lifelong baseball fan, and being the vehicle with one of the, the links between Johnny and myself, uh, it, it's very sad to see what has happened to this franchise. And uh, hopefully, they can resurrect themselves. But it's going to be a while. So that's what people are looking forward to uh, football season. Yeah, I saw the other day the Los Angeles Dodgers came to town. Are you know the Best team in the National League, carrying an all-star squad. Either way, coming into town, you would expect to see a good team. The Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, these big franchises come to town. Fans are going to show up regardless of how the Reds are doing. And there was sub-10,000 fans in that crowd, and most of them were Dodgers fans. Like he said, it's just it's tough to see what's happening in that franchise. The Bengals are going to take over a little bit. And I, the other major league team we have there is the uh, FC Cincinnati, our soccer team. And mm-hmm. Reds are getting left in third place right now between those two two and three. Now, how does that... Well, you know, Go ahead. Excuse me, but there, there was a lot uh, made of, of Phil Castellini's offhanded remarks. And in my estimation, a lame attempt at sarcastic humor when he said, hey, you know, if not the Reds, where are you going to go? As if to say, you know... You need more uh, us more than we need you, which and that's not what Phil had in mind. And I think I think Bobby's dad called the uh, the local newspaper, the Cincinnati Enquirer, and sort of set them straight on Bob Castellini's thinking in this and how much they cherish the fans and how much they they value their stewardship of the Cincinnati Reds and how they are determined to turn this thing around. But the guy had been cast; he can't unring that bell. But uh, winning would make all of that go away. And I think back to the not-so-distant past when the same was said, and the same disparaging observations were made of the Cincinnati Bengals. Oh, they don't want to win. They don't want to do this. They're tight. And they, have, they have poor coaching. They have a, a meager scouting department. Well, all of a sudden, they're the toast of the town. 
with the acquisition of one, granted, one generational player, Joe Burrow, and well, and Jamar Chase, and he certainly has a supporting cast here, which is which is making uh, for a lot of excitement in the tri-state here. So uh, that's not to say that it can't turn around with the Reds, but it won't turn around as quickly as it did with the Bengals. And let me let me ask you about more about the Bengals because I actually met Anthony Munoz. What a great guy! Oh, yeah. Terrific. He's, I've met him he, plenty of times over the he's years. Gold, he's the gold standard, you know. It, really is. And he's still active in, in the Cincinnati area? Oh, yes. He lives here. He and his wife live here. Uh, I think Michael, his son, now lives and works up in Canton. He has some affiliation with the uh, the actual Hall of Fame facilities up there. And his uh, daughter, Michelle, I believe, still lives in the greater Cincinnati area here. And just, you know, th- that's one of the things, Jason and Bobby, that I really, really cherish about Cincinnati being my hometown. And I'm very proud to to make this observation about how many professional athletes come to Cincinnati, play their careers here, and then then they decide to retire here and raise their families here. Uh, there's Anthony, there's Max Montoya, there's uh, David Fulcher still lives here in all for safety. We have Chris Collinsworth lives here. We have uh, any number of people. Uh, Chris Sabo still lives here. Paul O'Neill, the Reds and Yankees legend, makes his home in Cincinnati here because this is a great place to raise a family and raise kids and put down roots. So if we have these kinds of people choosing to stay in Cincinnati voluntarily, we must be doing something right. So, And it goes beyond the relative success of our sports teams. We have a wonderful standard of living here. We have a great... Uh, we have an opera company. We have Music Hall. The, the city parks are exemplary. We, we have uh, we have very reasonable uh, politics in here. Uh, the, the cost of living is not exorbitant. So, so we have a lot going for us here. It's just that at times uh, our, our professional sports teams suffer. So that, that's a trade-off that I'm willing to live with. I'm not leaving here because the Reds are having a tough job. No, and that's, that's a great point. And, you know, whenever I'm from New York, so any chance I get to talk about the Yankees, I'm going to go ahead and throw that in there. But let me let me ask you this, um, Dennis. Would you ever imagine Paul O'Neill being a broadcaster for games? I mean, he's I watch every Yankee game. At least I try to. He is... Mm-hmm. He's really good. He's very now. He does it from his home in Cincinnati. I don't know if I'm sure you know that, but he does. He he does all the games from his from his basement in Cincinnati. Did you ever think that he would be as good as he is on the Yes broadcast? Well, well, on a side note, did you ever think that Tim Nairing, who was an executive with the New York Yankees and has been for many years, that he fulfills his role with the Yankees from Anderson Township here in Cincinnati? Nairing uh, wow. does his job with the Yankees from here. But in terms of Paul becoming a broadcaster, I, I just finished reading uh, Paul's book, My Dad and Me, which is just a wonderfully touching um, memoir about his relationship with his dad and his birth into a baseball and sports crazy family and how that love for baseball especially grew over the years. And uh, Paul was you know, Paul's a very bright guy. He is very smart. He is a student of the game. He is a he respects the game uh, to the nth degree, and uh, I, I think he would be good as a broadcaster. He was he seemed a little shy and reticent at first, but he has grown into it, and he certainly has a voice and he has a message. And uh, well, I think that as we saw Paul mature over the years, 
And the fact that he had success when he went to New York, that, that's what made Paul O'Neill. I mean, to do it on the biggest, the biggest stage in sports, oh. uh, that's, uh, that was really remarkable. And I could be happier for him being medley or an exemplary couple. And again, they still live here, and I'm proud of that. that. That is amazing. And I will tell you this. Like I said, being from New York, he is a legend um, in New York. That guy cannot go anywhere in New York City without at least 10 to 15 people stopping him. Because, you know, being that he is from where you guys are from, somehow he he embraced the New York fans, and he brought that Cincinnati hard work ethic that he is he is – I've never seen a baseball player, correct me if you guys think I'm wrong, who got more mad at themselves <laughs> after striking out. Or remember the play where he kicked the ball in right field and somehow it went to it, oh, yeah. <laughs> it made it back. Yeah, and it, and it, unbeknownst to him, he reported an out. I, right, right. And that's what yeah. I'm saying. And then you see guys today like, again, I'm going to call them out. The striking, striking out is cool. It's okay to strike out 217 times if you're Joey Gallo. I mean, that's disgusting. What is it that Manny Ramirez said on the broadcast the other day that playing in Boston, playing New York, that makes you a big leaguer because the fans are going to keep you accountable. But that's probably why Paul O'Neill was so embraced because he very much kept himself accountable. So the fans knew when he was struggling, he got it. They didn't really have to tell him that. He he kept himself in check. When he performed, they're behind him. So I think there was a really good relationship of that hard work that the fans appreciate. It's like, hey, he's not here. He's not getting pinstripes and becoming big city. He's still cares about his result and the fans didn't have to let him hear it yeah. well and bobby you could certainly speak to this but paul you know speaks flowingly in this book and very touchingly and warmly about having his father as a sounding board and his dad was always very positive he said yeah you might not have gotten any hits tonight but you made a couple nice plays out there you kept your team in it and so his dad was always very positive, and he said, you know, go get him tomorrow. And in terms of Paul's relationship with the fans and how he treated people and just how he comported himself, not just as a major leaguer, but as a man, Paul is a guy who still believes that it's the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. I mean, he has a lot of faith in his family, faith in the Lord, and faith in himself, frankly. And uh, I think it showed during his career, and now that... Uh, now that you can example that, demonstrate his skills as a broadcaster, uh, I'm not surprised at that, at least. And I'm sure that the fans and the viewers and listeners in New York are very, very warm to Paul being uh, being part of their broadcast teams. So, DJ, uh, where, where's Paul living in town? Not to give away his address, but uh, just what, what part of town did he pick? Montgomery, in an area called the Winds, okay. which is uh, I can see it's him over near Ursuline Academy and. And Bethesda North Hospital, and it's a very, a fairly nondescript house. He he, <laughs> he doesn't drive a, a huge Hummer or anything like that. He is a low just profile. a low key guy, yeah. and he comes out to different charity events, and I, I see him now and again, and it, it's just like old times because those were very special. That 1990 season with the wire to wire Reds was uh, was pretty special, and Paul certainly was a critical part of that. Excellent. Yeah, I asked that because uh, one thing that is very particular to cincinnati and me and dj are from rival schools is if you get to know somebody in the cincinnati area the first question you ask is what high school did you go to that's something that anybody that's visited cincinnati has told me that never experienced anywhere else in the world but there's just a culture in cincinnati where there's there's four big schools in the gcl but any other where else knowing what high school you went to it's like okay i know what 
town you're from. I yeah. can tell what work ethic you have. I can decide if you're in a neighborhood where I might have some relatives. Uh, so I went, end up going to St. Xavier. DJ went to Elder. Um, so what was mm-hmm. that experience, that culture like still back in the day as far as the high school, the culture, since now you talked about a great place to raise a family and uh, how the kids came up and how your school at Elder represented your upbringing and your professional career. You, you know what, Bobby, it's interesting you mention that because St. Xavier, it's a, it's a very expensive, very reputable, a private Catholic-oriented boys high school. My uncle Jack taught at St. Xavier for 43 years. That's uh, my ties to Xavier were run deep and are very uh, enduring. I went to Elder High School because it was closer to my home where I grew up, my local parish. And uh, for all of the things that you can say about St. Xavier High School and the, the caliber of people that have graduated from there, and they are by and large uh, accomplished professionals in their chosen field. However, I would submit that Elder High School has a, a broader and deeper experience for its students because uh, people that I graduated with in 1968, they went to work for the police department. They went to work for the fire department. They went to work for the city uh, in the waterworks department. They also went to work as priests. They also went to work as geologists. Uh, they also went to work, one of my classmates was the commander of a nuclear submarine and now works for Boeing in Seattle, uh, well, before they moved to Chicago, and now they're moving to Texas. It's just that both schools have their, uh, their admirers and their detractors, but I wouldn't change my elder experience for anything, and I think you would say the same about your Xavier experience, wouldn't you, Bobby? Oh, absolutely, and even going around town, if I come home, I'm asking what school people went to. You know, if I if they're LaSalle, if they're Elder, or they're Moeller, I'm not going to say anything bad about them. It's like it gives me some some topics of conversation. We can talk about an old football game, or we can kind of razz each other a little bit. It's never a, a hierarchy. It's okay. Hey, this that just gives me some some fill in some background information. Now I know how we can approach this conversation. It's well, it's, it's, it's a great hey, dynamic. Hey, Josh, I, Josh, I think an important component to that is the fact they were uh, there were no girls at St. X and Elder and LaSalle and. Those are the, the, the big uh, all-boys schools. The all-boys schools, and I think that <laughs> made a big difference because you weren't distracted by the opposite sex sitting next to you and back to you in front of you. Uh, did you go to a co-ed high school? Case? I, I did. Yes, it was. Uh, it was very diverse, actually. Um, it was out here in Wellington, Wellington High School. It was, I believe, at the time, the largest high school in Palm Beach County. I think we had about thirty-five hundred students. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was big because. Yeah. Everybody made the travel down here from from New York. So they say, if you live on the east coast of Florida, you came down ninety five. If you live on the west coast of Florida, you came down seventy five. So we came down ninety five. Mm-hmm. The pizza part is there. You had seventeen hundred and fifty girls, seventeen hundred fifty boys, and I think that makes sense because Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong. We didn't worry about styling out in front of other guys. We didn't worry about what was cool. We were worried about you know our friends and our homework and and what time practice was going to begin over and things like that. It just it was a focus on things that um, that didn't have to do with the opposite sex. And, and I think that was that was part of the maturation process. And there was plenty of time for women after, after school and after we got out of high school. But uh, it's not like we were socially 
uh, impeded. You know, we knew how to comport ourselves around women and girls, and, and we could dance and like music and like to be around women. But it, it wasn't it wasn't a focus, as, as you might put it. I agree. It was it was good distraction. There were still those kids that would show up and you know try to flaunt what they had and try and still maintain this alpha dynamic but i think the majority <laughs> ends good. up just realizing like hey we're just a bunch of guys trying to do this together there's no you know extra testosterone fueled ambitions in school it's it's just get in there get it done and um we all rooted for each other across sports across departments and now you know definitely just across sports i'm you know kyle rudolph fan despite him being an elder grad you know I, I'll, I'll root for anybody that's out there just if they're Cincinnati. We all came from the same good culture. And uh, yeah, I'm all about it. I think it's great. Yeah. Like it's funny that you guys mentioned, and I have one more question, uh, Dennis, before we let you go, what was the, okay. So for instance, in New York, it's basketball down here, it's football, right? Down here being South Florida. What's the big Mm -hmm. sport by you guys at high school level or high school level? High school level, it's still football. Yeah. Football, basketball is a close second. Baseball is a close third to that. Uh, but now we have uh, soccer is obviously picking up its devotees, uh, lacrosse, volleyball. But uh, I, I think at this stage of the game, uh, football still rules the roost in the greater Cincinnati area here. You, uh, you still have full arenas for basketball. Uh, you still have fans in the stands for baseball. But you don't have bands and you don't have cheerleaders to the cross team. Yeah, I think the, the same way it you know goes across all sports. When you had a certain type of matchup, you know that GCL, like I was talking about, those four schools when we were playing each other, that arena was packed, sold out, no matter what sport it was. Sometimes we were going into the college yeah. arenas because we had so much of an interest in in playing each other. We had mm-hmm. what was called like the GCL Challenge, uh, the Kirk Curb Street Challenge, which was the four GCL teams playing the state championships from the surrounding states. They brought him and said, hey, here's our league against the best of the region. What can we do? And it was still pretty dominant. And again, University of Cincinnati Stadium hosting these high school exhibition games sold out. But you get the good matchups. You get it across all sports. But yeah, football definitely dominated the Friday Night Lights. I love it. And and mm-hmm. let, let me ask you this, uh, Dennis. How is, how is Luke Fickle in the community there? I mean, he took – didn't he take Cincinnati to, to the playoffs last year in college football? I mean, at the University of Cincinnati, he's been – He's been instrumental. I, mean, I don't even know what the word is. Turning that program from nothing into an absolute dominant powerhouse. You know, uh, I think Rick Minter uh, gets uh, doesn't get enough credit for the uh, turnaround that he started at UC, and then Mark uh, Antonio followed, and then uh, uh, Brian Kelly followed, and then Butch Jones followed, and then now Luke Fickle was the perfect the perfect transition to take us all the way home. And uh, the fact that, well, and Tommy Toberville was a bust. Right. Tommy Toberville, he was a bad recruiter. He was a great golfer, okay? He, uh, he did very little. When he left, the cover was entirely empty for Luke Fickle. And Luke started from scratch. He took his lumps a couple of seasons there. And then he started to recruit local kids. Imagine that. The kids that were going to Ohio State, who were going to LSU, that were going to Notre Dame, a lot of them, at Penn State, Louisville, a lot of them are, hello, they're starting to stay home. And Luke is just really mining this local, the, the local fields here 
and getting a disproportionate amount of kids to stay home because it's now cool to go and play at the University of Cincinnati. And he's obviously had opportunities to go elsewhere, but he has uh, he's really put down roots here. He lives about three miles from me, and he now has a compound in his house. He has a full-court basketball <laughs> gym in his backyard. He brings recruits over there and makes them feel part of the program before they even sign on, as far as he illegally can. And uh, that gone if it doesn't work. And he's a gentleman guy, and he's got a great staff, and the success is, uh, has fallen. Uh, I think just look for great things to become with Luke Pickle, and he's not going anywhere because guess what? His wife likes to hear. that that sets the tone but so dj what do you got coming up soon i know you're going to be joining us again for the johnny bench awards here on july 26th Uh, well we'll have our uh, winners i am i am i'm the master of ceremonies for that and i'm looking forward to that which is a great event and the fact that it has been relocated here from wichita kansas is another feather in our cap uh this sunday i am the master of ceremonies for the uh, roses High School Hall of Fame induction ceremony when another former St. Xavier bomber, Luke Keefley, late of the Carolina Panthers, or uh, yeah, the Panthers, right? Yep, all full, full uh, he with is Panthers. at Boston College, and he is uh, he is going to be coming here to be inducted. I spoke with Luke yesterday, and uh, we have a fellow by the name of Pete Carruthers, another St. X grad, uh, and then we got an elder grad who was a wrestler and. And this is the Roses High School Hall of Fame. This is the 47th annual fair, Jason. And uh, it was started by a pizza entrepreneur named Buddy Rosa. And he had a fire at his restaurant years and years ago. And kids from St. X, LaSalle, Elder, and Oak Hills helped him clear the debris so he could rebuild and get back in business in a timely fashion. He has been dedicated to servicing high school sports ever since. And he started this Hall of Fame, and the rest is history. And, Kyle Rudolph is a member of it. Let's see who else. Patty Larkin is a member of the La Rosa Hall of Fame. The list goes on and on. It's it's pretty remarkable. And Buddy Bell, David Bell, they're members of the hall. So I, I have the privilege of them seeing that. And then, of course, we've got the Bench Award coming up. And doesn't get any better than that. That's amazing. And and I love, you know, we both love the work that, that you're doing for the uh, the city of Cincinnati. And I'm sure they thank you as well. And, and you know, Dennis, we, we can't thank you enough for coming on to the show i don't know i might go home tonight and tell my wife i want to move to cincinnati i think you sold me but i don't know in the winter time you know <laughs> well uh, real estate is still fairly reasonably priced after jason <laughs> you know uh yeah and winters are the winters are anything but gruesome it's not chicago it's not even columbus i mean we have pretty moderate winters here uh, not like palm beach gardens uh, but then again <laughs> what is but you're always welcome to visit, and we'd always make you feel very welcome, as Bobby can attest to. Absolutely, and and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, going through the difficulties with us with from the technical aspect, and uh, we are going to talk to you soon. And thank you so much. And give my best to McKay Griffin and Bobby. Tell Dad and the boys I said hi, and we'll all talk to all of you soon. Absolutely, I'll see you uh, just in a month from Thanks. now. Yeah. In, indeed, you will. Okay, buddy. Take care. Take all right. Care. That was a great Dennis Jansen, man. He is awesome. He totally sold me. I was ready to move to Cincinnati, except for the wintertime, like I said. I, it's like you said, it's moderate winter. It's nothing to be too concerned about. Yeah, I, I miss it. It's a great place to be. And I'll tell you, Luke Keekley coming up. I'm excited for him. Proud of him. I went to St. Xavier uh, one year 
above him and i'm not going to say i was friends with him i'm not going to say that i was buddies i played football for one year i'm not going to say anything about that puts me on the same level as him i'm just going to at least say in my experience watching him go to work he was a pro at the high school level and he was just always the guy that he's not wasting any single second on that field on his ambitions to be a professional football player even uh in college level so i went to boston university he went to boston college we didn't hang out again we weren't really friends but we ran into each other a couple times through town and just an absolute cordial professional person where it's like we recognize each other we played football for a year so he saw knew who i was and just still came up it's like hey bobby how's it going like he's he was gonna be a pro he was gonna be a hall of famer you just he had that demeanor of that's the guy that you want to invest in for as you know a, just a true athlete oh he was the best man are you kidding me luke keekley he's you know for the panthers he i mean the guy had 150 tackles every single year and i think you know towards the end obviously i can't speak for him i don't know him but i think he valued his life over football. You know what I mean? And I think that's where baseball is going to take over because a lot of parents are worried about their kids playing football these days. I mean, that, that's this is a discussion for another day. But, you know, I think what I'm seeing in baseball, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, is that they've improved dramatically this year in, in the sense that they're cutting games down shorter. Right. Once that pitch clock starts next year, it's going to be two hour and 20 minute games. I think I think you're going to get a lot of backlash. You know, as someone who watches baseball as much as I do, the game's got to get shorter. I think it's overhandling. You think so? I think the pitch clock is a little bit overhandling. I would like to see it at the minor league level. Yeah. Just as far as that will help groom some players. But there's nothing to stop a pitcher from, hey, if he's running out of time, there's no real penalty that you can enforce that isn't going to be tedious if the pitcher's running out of time he's got to run around base he steps off the mound and acts like he's going to make a pickoff so i think there are a lot of other things to do again at the minor league level you can groom these players to be able to pitch on a pitch clock and right. get their timing down a little bit better i think one great thing they've done is for tv timeouts they've now regulated those before it was like oh, it's hey, maximize the time you're just sitting there i've worked on the production staff during that transition before we're sitting there. We're trying to get as many fan shots as possible because we're waiting to come back from commercial break and the umpire's sitting there like, oh, hold on. We got still got to wait for the TV broadcast to come back. Now the umpire's like, hey, minute 30, we're back. TV, let's go. Catch up. I think that definitely had a – it changed the timing. It's not just the duration. It's the cadence of the game that changed. Right, but, right. No, it, and it's, it's going to get better. And like I said mm -hmm. in the first show, dude, you put Theo Epstein in charge, man. That's your guy. That's my mm -hmm. guy. I mean, the guy broke two curses. And I was hoping that, okay, at the beginning of the year, if the Yankees fire Cashman, I, I would write a blank check to Theo Epstein. But look at what Cashman has done. Okay, they're, and, and, and we're going to be biased here. Me and McKay are both Yankee fans, so we're going to throw some Yankee plugs in there. The Yankees are 52-18. and 18. That's, you know, obviously through 70 games. That's the seventh best start of all time. If they didn't blow that game on Sunday, it would have been the third or fourth best start of all time through 70 games. They were beating Toronto eight to three. It was it was bound to happen. Blew the lead, fifty two and eighteen. But I can tell you guys, watching that game last night, where the Yankees came back, scored four in the ninth off of Presley. Baseball is back. That stadium was electric. McKay. Oh yeah, from the first with Stanton's home run, and then I was I just looked back. I was streaming the game on my computer, and when Hicks went deep, I was like, oh my god! And then you could see the fans just holding on to every pitch after that. Oh, they, they, this team, and that's what nobody really gets. You know, I know we spoke about Cincinnati a lot, and everybody's like, oh, the Yankee fans are this, that, and the other. Listen, when you had George Steinbrenner 
who said it's championship or bust. That's all you expect. I would rather do what Boston does as much as this pains me to say. I'd rather take last a couple of years, but win three championships in between that. Oh, yeah? Not really. I'm lying. <laughs> yeah, I'm they, totally lying. I hate Boston. They haven't gone under 500 in over like 20 years. I think it's more. I think it's since... Yeah, like 2025, somewhere in that range. I think, yeah. You know, and it's pretty crazy. And let me ask you this, Bobby. What do you do with a 52 and 18 team? It ain't broke. You don't fix it. But you have two holes. You have Joey Gallo, who can't hit water <laughs> if he fell out of a boat. He's uh, so bad. And he, you know, he really makes me angry. This guy just will swing. He's like Pedro Serrano, but with fastballs. Yeah. He will hit every – he will try to hit, which he never does, hit every single high fastball. I've never seen a hitter who where the, the entire side of the other field is wide open, and he can't do it. He just refuses. He's I, – I, I don't – go ahead. So what are the holes you're talking – like what I – because mean, you got so much talent around the whole team. You got however many three – First baseman, five DHs on that team. What are the holes that you want to see filled at the trade deadline? Well, listen, I'm not one of those guys who are like, oh, my God, we need to do this. We need to do this. Personally, I don't think they're going to get rid of Joey Gallo. Why? He's a left-handed bat. We all know he can't hit, but he's a gold glover. And Cashman seems like a guy who actually met at a giant game once. Very nice guy who won't admit his faults. They gave up a lot to get this guy, right? Mm -hmm. Joey Gallo. And I love him. A, he's Italian. B, he's a lefty. We need a lefty. Right. Once Cashman changed that lineup around, getting more lefties, it's crazy. But do I think they're going to get rid of Gallo? What do you do with the holes? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It was interesting that even when they acquired Gallo, because it was clear that they wanted another middle of lineup lefty hitter, and there was Rizzo and there was Gallo. And the Yankees said, why not both? And yeah. It seemed like they were just kind of packing it in a little bit. But if you really want to flip Gallo, can you flip Gallo? And there's plenty of things that the Yankees can do. They always got enough money to make whatever they want to have happen in the middle of the season. I don't think they will flip Gallo. I don't think they will flip Hicks. But I think the real story about the Yankees is that nobody really talks about. Obviously, Aaron Judge is the guy is playing on another level. I don't think I've ever seen. We've never seen a man of his size hit the ball as far and as long. And and his approach, he uses the whole field. He uses the whole field. And here's the other thing: the guy can play defense, man. I mean, you could you put him out in center field, and he's he's lights out. He's better than Hicks. He's better than obviously better than Stanton, better than Gallo. He's an athlete first hitter second slugger third I, I even seen him come up in the prospect system i was working uh with scout school in 2014 when he was in the arizona uh, fall league yeah and you could see that he knows he's big he doesn't have to swing with all his might he works with the pitches he's got and just makes contact with the ball you see that uh, some other great big hitters right now like jordan alvarez we were talking about off, he's a off the mic um was Adolis Garcia for the Rangers. Rangers. Just these big guys that know, hey, I'm big and strong. I don't have to you know, swing and move the wind with it. I can just get the barrel on the ball and let that do the work. And that's great that you mentioned about Jordan Alvarez. First of all, he hit a three-run missile last night off Italione. But the thing is, they got him on the cheap, man. They got him for nothing. He just signed a new contract for $115, $114 million. That guy's, I mean, he's number two in the in the MVP right now. Obviously, it's Judge. Then you have him. A trout's always going to be there. You know, going back to what we were saying about the Yankees, I, I, you know who doesn't get enough credit is Matt Blake, man. He's a pitching coach. That dude transformed Talion. He made Montgomery better. I don't know. Whatever he's doing with Nestor Cortez is amazing. And he's coming back. And he's got Severino, who's coming back off of 
Tommy John. So he'll be the next hot commodity besides Joe Espada. Mark my words. He'll be gone next year or the year after. He'll be, he'll be, I could honestly see him going, I always say the Marlins. I could see him going to the Marlins or the Reds, man. I would take that guy in a heartbeat. I, I, we don't have the pitching that I wouldn't want to see him with the Reds because I don't think he's going to succeed there. I think that would happen with, um, oh, I wish, uh, was it Brian Price, who was our pitching coach under Dusty Baker? And when Dusty was moved out of the Reds, Brian Price took over because of the success of our pitchers. Right. But he created that success, but whether he was a game manager and whether or not we had additional pitchers still coming up in the system, when we put all our money into Homer Bailey, let Johnny Cueto walk, I think he, he, yeah, he's, he created a good product. But again, we talked about on a few shows ago is if you don't really find that right situation, that's going to be fitting for you. And that has the game plan that is going to accommodate how you manage the game. Uh, I think, you know, Marlins, they got some pitching. I think that's a great chance for him. Right. You're maybe we're biased because we're in Marlins country. We want to see all these great guys come down here, but I think that'd be a good opportunity for me if they can hold on to the rotation they got because they still got some young arms and that'd be a good opportunity for him. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I'm very curious to see what this Yankee team does. You know, in 98, everybody talks 98, 98, 98. They have a better record right now through 70 games. They have a better team, though. Well, that's remained to be seen. You know, the thing is, going back to 98, it was it was the only time as a fan I watched where I said, I don't even need to watch this. I know they're going to win. Right? 96 was cool. Uh, 95 was heartbreak. And then once, we, once 98 came, you're like, dude, no one's beating this team. And it wasn't flashy guys. There wasn't flashy guys on that team. I would love to know, McKay, if you can look it up, how many all-stars did that 98 team have? Because I guarantee you it wasn't more than three guys. Maybe three or four. That's that big red machine chemistry. That's that what you, it is. It's You got guys, they're role players. You got guys that it's like, hey, this is, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what position everybody played and what batting order they had, but it's like, hey, we need a shortstop who can be a leadoff hitter. We need an outfielder who can be an eighth hitter. You got you can't just kind of stack the lineup with all these sluggers. I think like what the Phillies are going to run into trouble having. You got to get guys that are going to play in their roles and that's why I worry with the Yankees is do they have those guys that are in the moment where they got to play situational Six hitting? Six all-stars. Are they going to be able to make that happen? That same dynamic. Right. Six all-stars. Six I was all-stars wrong. in 1998. Six all-stars. Yeah, that is pretty good and, and we'll see what happens. You know, um, 52 and 18 is great record, but you're in New York, man. It doesn't matter. You can win 130 games. You, you don't win the World Series. It's a bust. Yeah. None of them started, though. None of them started in the All-Star game. Nope. Not one. Nope. Curious question. Sure. Just, I know it's probably going to be too soon to say. If the World Series is Yankees-Dodgers, mm-hmm. does that prove the CBA wrong as far as their intentions to level out the playing field? No. Or, or have they just been in the situation they already had these rosters set up? I think that's a twofold question. So when it comes to, to the to the CBA, okay, let me backtrack a little. And if I get if I go too far off the, the, the plank here, you just tell me. Moneyball is great. Name me one Moneyball team that's won the World Series. Rays are 0-2. Oakland's never been there since Moneyball, right? Yeah. Not the movie. The, the, the concept. The concept by Bill James. It doesn't work. I think if you have a middle-of-the-pack team like the Braves, they're a perfect example. As much as this pains me to say, and I was telling you guys pregame, it's safe to say the Houston Astros have taken over the worst team 
hated by the New York Yankee fans. I, I cannot. There's always hate for Boston. I get it. And Tampa. But this is another level, man. This is this is a championship that was stolen from them. So I think Houston's another team. They did it through the draft, right? They tanked. They tanked and they traded. They had what was it, like Michael Bourne, Hunter Pence, Everybody. Lance Berkman. They had a solid team, but they just didn't have that top to bottom right. roster that you're going to need to win a championship. So it's like, you know what? We're going to start over blank slate. Blank slate. And Bo Porter actually was the the fall guy for that. He was he was the manager during all those years. If somebody held a gun to my head right today, speaking of managers, who would my manager of the year would be? Who do you think it would be? For this year? Oh, yeah. It's going to blow your mind. You're going to be like, dude, are you crazy? And I'm going to tell you why. I'm running through the... Uh, it's in the AL East. Charlie Montoya. I love him. Great manager. I think he does. Actually, I think they're they're not playing as well. You ready for this? Brandon Hyde, Baltimore Orioles. Let me tell you why. They quietly, and I now this is someone I follow the AL East very closely. They're not a pushover anymore. You have a lot of up and coming guys. You got Sed Mullins, Austin Hayes, Adley Rushman, Bryant Mountcastle, the captain, and Trey Mancini. He's not the captain, but whatever. I'm curious if they went through the same thing with the Astros. I know Rushman is coming through the draft, but where the Orioles also had, you know, was Adam Jones, Nick Markakis. Oh, those guys uh, were Who's great. the other outfielder they had out? Um, they had Chris Davis. He Chris, Chris Davis. That, yeah. But, well, you're not <laughs> trading to flip him, though. They but, had J.J. Hardy when he was the stud. J.J. Hardy. J.J. Hardy. Yeah. But they had that same dynamic that yeah. the Astros had where it's like, hey, they got some all-stars. They got some big names, but they don't have that window where everything comes together that's so important for some of those mid-market teams sometimes like the royals were able to pull off when they won the world series right they had all the right guys they had all the right trade pieces all at the same time if you don't have it you got to sell and so maybe i'm curious when you got those guys you were mentioning they're coming up with the orioles how much they're a result of those trades yeah that's it that's a good point we're going to look into that but i'm telling you man you get these guys some quality start. They got a good bullpen. You know, I am the jo- I'm jocking them a little bit. They're 32 and 39 right now, but they play in the toughest division in baseball. You put them in the AL West. I guarantee you, they're in third place, second place. Uh, they're they're good. They're AL good. AL West is a bit of a wash. You're right. I, I can see that. Yeah, the AL West is a wash. But anyways, all right. Enough with the Orioles. I, I, come on. <laughs> Can't spend too much airtime. Yeah, I know. Was this ESPN? We talk about them for a half second. <laughs> I know. I'll Orioles t- are good. I'll tell you, the same kind of on that quick topic is how long you can spend on teams. The Yankees, obviously, you go compared to market size. But I remember, what was it, 2010, Mm -hmm. sitting in the uh, cafeteria at Boston University watching the ESPN highlights, and they're going over the games the previous day. The Reds had just secured their first winning record and won their first division in 14 years, I think it was. And they talked about it for all of 20 seconds. Yeah, The Yankees game that was inconsequential to baseball history got five minutes of coverage. Yeah, and and that's unfortunate because you know ESPN is. I don't. To be honest with you, I don't even watch ESPN anymore. Have, have you? I uh, not for a while. Not for a while. I actually haven't. What kind of did it for me is the Roger Clemens interview because that was kind of a little bit of a editing, telling a different narrative. I watched Roger Clemens full interview where he came out and admitted his transgressions and steroid use. I watched it from full length live. And then when ESPN afterwards was playing the highlights of it, they clipped it. And there was a couple times they put different portions together and out of context, told different story because he was very apologetic as far as I saw. He was very upset with his decisions. He was very uh, vocal throughout the interview about how badly he felt for misleading the fans. And ESPN stitched it together in a way that made it seem like he was unapologetic and did not care 
about his actions. It's unfortunate. You know, they have so much turnover now at ESPN and I can see why. You know, I, I mean, they are just with the get up and the whatever the other show is called. It's too much, man. I just go to Bleacher Report, <laughs> to be honest with you. Bleacher Report is absolutely genius. I don't know who owns Bleacher Report, but um, I love it. And and to be honest with you, I think with the – what's the word I'm looking for? With the maturation of baseball teams getting their own networks, what do you, what do you care about watching other teams for? If you're a diehard Yankee fan, you're not gonna you're not gonna watch ESPN to see what the see what the uh, Pittsburgh Pirate did. No, Pittsburgh Pirates did. Nobody cares. So you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, okay, oh, you know, we have MLB TV, but you're not gonna watch ESPN. And I think ESPN to me has just jumped the shark on so much stuff. And there's a reason why their ratings are down. Their turnover is is ridiculous, and it's just boring. It's a little bit boring. It's a little just too much, you know, opinion and controversy for the sake of filling airtime. And, and I think, you know, down the road, maybe they'll go back to just being about sports. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, but that's, is that just what sells TV now is people got to tune in for the opinions and controversy, find something to get it riled up about? Apparently. Yeah. Across all media. <laughs> yeah. Things we can't discuss, but I think that's just penetrated sports and that's why we can't necessarily, we're a, a headline show either. We're sitting here just talking about our opinions, but. Yeah, that's all we got is our opinions. And, and you know, that's a good point. Speaking of opinions, the, it was the NBA draft this week. Before we close the show, there was a movie on Netflix that Adam uh, Sandler did. Hustle. Did you see it? I haven't yet. Dude, great, great movie. He's, he's, a, he's a longtime scout for the Sixers, and he just wants to be a coach. His lifelong dream is to be on that bench coaching and he travels the world he goes all over he looks for special talent that nobody else has seen he ends up finding a talent i don't want to go too far into it but uh it's a great movie he's amazing man the way he he does sports movies he does comedies he intertwines both he does it all that's my watch for the week how about you my watch for the week i don't know if i can prepare for this one <laughs> <laughs> i threw you for a loop sorry it was, it was a long uh yeah it was a long work we got like i said we got the uh, johnny bench awards coming up and that is uh i guess i'll buff that out the watch week is you know come to Cincinnati, see a live show, see the Johnny Bench Awards banquet on July 26th at Great American Ballpark is in partnership with the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, going to benefit the Reds Community Fund and the Johnny Bench Scholarship Fund. There's a lot of number crunching for me. So I, I kind of have some things going on in the background, but yeah, it's it's collecting stats for we got 10 awards categories, national college baseball catcher and softball catchers of the year. And then we represent high school athletes in Reds country. So we all got those same two awards for Ohio, Indiana, West Virginia, and Kentucky. I think it's great. I think it's awesome. You know, hopefully I can go one of these years. Maybe we'll take McKay up there and we'll uh, we'll meet up with, with uh, Mr. Jansen up there and uh, paint the town red, literally, in he's, Cincinnati. He's the MC. He's great. He does – he's great with interviews, too, because when we get these kids that are, you know, in awe sometimes from these small towns and play baseball, that's what they know, and they get up on stage and you shove a microphone in their face, they know what to do, but Danny Jansen is just that – that friendly neighbor, his dad calls him America's house guest, where he just he knows how to socialize. He knows how to talk with friends. He knows what he's doing. I love it. And uh, we're excited to hear about it in late July. Obviously, maybe we'll do a show up there. Maybe you'll, well, actually, you'll be up there anyway. Maybe they'll do a show up there. Yeah, somehow. I'll be in town. I'll be calling remotely from Cincinnati that oh. week. I'll be, no, but the week before, I'll be calling remotely from the Otisaga Hotel. 
okay. in Cooperstown. That's going to be a great We're show. going from induction in uh, Cooperstown Hall of Fame, and then I'm going straight to Cincinnati for the awards program. I love it. I love it. Well, guys, we can't thank you enough for listening. Um, this has really taken off. One of these days, we'll get a sponsor. Who knows? Maybe we'll just ride solo. It doesn't matter to me. Just kidding. But anyways, can't thank you guys enough for listening. We cannot thank enough the Connecticut School of Broadcasting and Jim York here. These guys are great. They're wonderful. We cannot say so many good things about them. So thank you guys again. Tune in next week, and we will see you then. Adios.